0: What's up guys, welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast, I am your host Dan Pringle, and today I'm going to sit down with Mike McHugh to talk about life as a professional squash player. What's up guys, welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast, I am your host Dan Pringle. And uh, I'm really excited to get this podcast to you. It's it's a great conversation that I have with a patient of mine, Mike McHugh, who's about 80 in the world right now in professional squash, which uh, makes it pretty unique. I know there's a lot of people out there who grow up with the idea of being a professional athlete, of being top 100 in the world in whatever it is they do, and very few people ever get a chance to achieve it. So just from that alone, I think uh, hearing his story about how he got to where he is, the challenges uh, that he encountered and encounters now, Uh, I think you'll get a lot out of it. I think you'll just kind of get some cool kind of behind the scenes insight into the life of a professional squash player. The other thing that really strikes me uh, about Mike and the many conversations we've had over time is he's so insightful about himself, his career, the world of squash, the world of professional sports, uh, and life in general. And, and that makes it really uh, interesting every time I get a chance to, to bring him into the clinic and, and work on things. Uh, for the most part, we're, uh, we're always working on mostly management stuff. On the occasion, he's had some acute things, but he's been lucky enough to avoid any major injuries. Um, but he talks about the injury history uh, that, that he and, uh, and many of his, his um, fellow squash players have encountered. Uh, he talks a lot about the, uh, the journey it took to kind of go from a, a young, uh, high-potential athlete to the tough decision to become a pro. Because obviously in squash, compared to many other sports, um, there's not necessarily this really high-end return on being top Ten or top hundred in the world, like there might be in tennis or basketball or football or something of that nature. So, uh, so it really was a tough decision. So, how he comes across doing that, and and whether that was what uh, he anticipated, and the different challenges he encountered, uh, are all really interesting to me. And, and I think you'll you'll find that fascinating as well. So, if you're looking for some more content, you can reach me at dpringle.physio physio on Instagram. You can find me dpringle underscore physio on Twitter. You can reach me on the website at clinicalmastermind.com, and you can actually sign up for the mailing list, which is going to uh, have a lot of great content coming out over the next little while. Make sure that you sign up for that. And you can email me personally at dan at clinicalmastermind.com. Last but not least, I'm going to ask you to do your best to share this podcast with as many people as you know. As you can imagine, I've got a lot going on on my daily and weekly basis. I'm really glad uh, that I got a chance to put this stuff out, and I'm hoping that uh, you can share it with other people you might find relevant. So if you can do that for me, then uh, we'll keep pumping these things out, and I look forward to uh, sharing more with you in the future. And now, please enjoy the podcast. Um. So yeah, welcome. I'm glad to, glad to have you here. It's going to yeah, be fun. Great this is your second podcast ever? Second podcast ever. The other one was by phone, so yeah, this is an <laughs> in,
1: in-person different experience. But, All no, right. That's yeah.
0: great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's going yeah. uh, to be fun. Um. So let's kind of get right into it. You know, as a, as like a professional athlete, obviously everyone kind of has their journey about how to get mm-hmm. there. And before you were... A pro, obviously, you saw a lot of professional squash players. You saw a lot of just professional athletes. I know you're just like a sports fan in general. Mm-hmm. Like, Did you, when you were a kid, were you someone who aspired to be a f- professional athlete?
1: I think, yeah, when you're very young, like every yeah. Canadian boy wants to play in the NHL or something, and maybe more aspirational, things like that, but I didn't ever actually think it was a serious possibility. Yeah. Um, you know, wasn't particularly talented in other sports, so it wasn't <laughs> you a know, possibility, but even as I got a little bit older, like through my teenage years playing junior squash at a progressively sort of higher level getting up into the sort of 15 16 17 year old range I still didn't ever really truly believe that it could happen but it's sort of a sport like squash is so um, it's such like a meritocracy that you know the amount of hard work you put in will pay off at some point regardless of how you know untalented you may feel or you know how far behind in development you might be at that age you know if you put enough hours in squash is a very rewarding sport and you're not necessarily limited by size or you know certain physical traits you know everyone can sort of make it work if they're diligent enough so I never really thought it would be possible but you know as I became you know closer to sort of adulthood and the age to play pro um you know it just sort of materialized yeah that's that's
0: interesting right the from like a physical standpoint you see a bit of a spectrum you don't see too many chubby uh squash players um but you know height and kind of you know body dimensions a little bit seems like it varies a little bit more than uh than you'd expect but also there's no kind of frame that you have to have necessarily to be a top player it sounds like from what i gather there is kind of a prototypical squash player i think a lot of
1: a lot of i think sort of maybe someone that's between five ten and six one would be sort of the ideal height and it's sort of a typical athletic build where you're like Sort of if you're six foot tall, maybe 170 pounds, that's a good weight depending how it's distributed. But yeah, everything's a trade-off. You know, there are some guys on the tour that are six foot five. You know, they have a great reach across the middle. They can volley the ball a lot. But the the trade-off is that they're going to struggle to get low into the corners and twist and turn. Or the smaller guys are going to have an easier time sort of being mobile around the court, but they're not going to be able to control the space as much with their with their reach and using their body. Right. So I think as long as, you know, you can pretty much come in with any reasonably athletic build. And if you play to your strengths and learn how to use those advantages and to sort of minimize your weaknesses, then you can make it work. Gotcha. Now, I'm
0: going to go back to something you said earlier. You basically just said... Hard work pays off in <laughs> squash, <laughs> which sounds like the most generic thing you can say, but like if you want to be a pro athlete, like put in the work and put in the time. Um, so rather than just like y- letting you clarify that, mm-hmm. like t- why don't we go back and talk like, when did you start playing squash? When did you start realizing that you're actually good relative mm-hmm. to even your peers? Mm-hmm. And then when you said 15, 16, you still were trying to kind of, you're still developing relative to everybody. Like, when did it, when did that spike happen where you were suddenly, okay, I'm not just like a good player in Canada or a good player in Ontario. When was it like, okay, I can get to the next level. So let's, let's go back to when yeah. you were younger. Like, when did you start and like, how did that, the first number of years kind of
1: go for you? Yeah, I started playing, sort of playing junior tournaments and like practicing multiple times a week when I was around 10. Um, I started playing uh, for the first time when I was, I think, maybe seven or eight. But that was, like, very sporadic. I was still doing a lot of other sports, you know, hockey, basketball, typical stuff. And I started coming down, living in Sudbury, started coming down to the Toronto area for some junior tournaments, doing a few, like, squash camps in the summer, sort of training with a little bit of guidance from coaches back home when I was 10 or 11. But the first couple of years, you know, I wasn't particularly committed to it. It would be training a couple times a week, like any other kid that age, mm-hmm. and without you know a particularly good um, environment or like squash infrastructure in Northern Ontario, it was tough to learn the game and play at a high level. But by the time I was sort of thirteen or fourteen, I'd quit uh, playing hockey. Um, I wasn't playing. Entry was dead. That was dead. I mean, I was yeah a little undersized for hockey and a little slow and you know <laughs> not very talented. <laughs> okay. There wasn't wasn't very going right? on. Yeah, I loved it, but you know getting you know getting hit from behind into the boards ten times a year kind of lost its appeal. Hmm. But uh, so I basically was left with only squash. And but I hadn't really achieved anything in the game or shown that much potential. But it became my main sport and. Yeah, around 13, 14, I remember that summer, I started training off-court, doing, you know, simple weights and doing some fitness training and some circuit training and actually sort of trying to take it a little bit more seriously and then... Through the couple seasons of sort of being fourteen,
0: didn't you say wasn't there a story like didn't you go to nationals or something and you were in la- you came in last place?
1: Yeah, I think the first time I played junior nationals, I was um, I think I just turned thirteen, so I was playing under fifteen, okay. um, and I think yeah, I came. There was sixty four people in the draw, and I came yeah. I don't think you can actually come dead last, but I tied for last (laughs) um, and, like, didn't win a match. And that was, you know, at the time, you're obviously miles and miles off, you know, even competing with the guys who are making it later into the draw. But then, so that was when I was 13. And then the next year, uh, age 14, I uh, managed to come fifth in the same event in the same age category. So,
0: like, a lot of kids, I mean, you might have still been at that age where you're like, I'm just happy to be here. Like, I'm happy playing. Mm -hmm. I'm having fun. Mm But there's a lot of kids who might have had that kind of experience and then said, you know what, I like playing squash, but like, I'm not going to take it that seriously. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you did the opposite. Was there – can you recall, like, what that felt like at the time? And did you
1: – did it create more resolve for you? Or was it just, ah, it's another match, so let me keep doing what I'm doing? I think you know I, just, I, I that was around the same time when I dropped all the other sports. I was left only with squash, and you know my parents said to me in a very fair way they said, look, like we'll invest you know the the time and the the, the money and the travel needed to get you uh, take this as far as you would like to, but you have to show that you're committed to the sport. You have to work hard. You have to you know have a good attitude towards it. And you know I sort of accepted that premise and became more and more obsessed with the game. Started researching more about squash. All online watching videos following the professional game and just became completely immersed in it and i think when i had a when i started putting more time in getting that first taste of improvement and success and some good results beating people you'd never beaten before yeah. that just you know kind of propagates itself and is more motivating and really took off from there and then realizing you know within a year's time the amount of improvement that you could show when other people at that age are still maybe playing other sports or not training as seriously you know it's just like it's just so inspiring and you know you motivate yourself and then you can constantly be setting you know new goals when you you know take one jump up the ladder you realize what needs to be done to get to the next rung and you know it's kind of a never ending that squash ladder is never ending yeah right the margins get smaller but the level is and you realize you know something that seemed out of reach a season ago is suddenly you know within your grasp but you you realize that you have to double down train harder train probably more intelligently even if you don't realize it at the age of 14 um and yeah that that you know there's always someone out there better than you there's always someone you haven't beaten yet that you feel you could and i think that's where that like motivation comes from more than any specific like one experience right so you were just a competitive kid and
0: you started putting more energy in it and you go from 64th to 5th and that probably coincides with this you know a little bit more confidence in your capabilities and your potential so talk to me then about those kind of those high school years then like what what was that evolution like from being 5th at N 15 Mm -hmm. and like were you did you end up, were you number one then going forward? Did you always have a couple of people you were battling with? Like, what did that look like over those kind high school years?
1: Yeah, so I remember, so yeah, so I came fifth and under 15. And then, so yeah, the, the categories are the odd numbered years. So under 15, under 17, under 19. So two years later, I ended up coming second and under 17. Uh, there was always one guy better than me who I could never, I had ended up sort of beating him a few times, but bad career head to head record. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at, at that point, I'd started to, you know, I was super fortunate to have been able to try travel abroad to Europe, to all over North America, to play different events, you know, international junior events. And once you get a taste of that level, you know, and it's its by no means sampling the whole world, it's just slightly bigger than what you're used to in Toronto, Ontario, and Canada. And you see, you know, what lies sort of beyond your own squash borders that I wouldn't say, you know, you're standing within... Canada or or whatever becomes irrelevant But you start to realize that there's a lot more out there and there are people who are Universes ahead of you that are your own age and you start you hopefully aspiring to compete with them You know the next time you see them at those same European junior events in a year's time or whatever so I guess going from f- I suppose being fifth in Canada to second over that you know two year span, um, I was probably starting to become more concerned about trying to compete with you know the players who are the best in the world or at least be within competing distance um, of them rather than just being so focused on you know arbitrarily where you're ranked in Canada at the time. Right. So I think that probably became the motivation from getting that exposure abroad. So I guess even though you went from fifth to second, which seems minimal to
0: you know but the outside world you started to realize that you were this big fish in a small pond kind of thing and that mindset starts to say all right that was that was a continuing motivation it wasn't just i want to stay at the top it was okay the top isn't really where i thought the top was it's just top relative to the community the environment the country i'm in i need to i would like to look Beyond that, right?
1: Well, exactly. And even even at the time within, you know, you start to realize as you travel more often, you see like, you know, you realize the age groups are pretty arbitrary. You know, a guy's born two days too late to play in your age category. <laughs> so he's out and you come sixth instead of seventh. Like, what are you really sixth in? You know, people who were born before January 10th, whatever year, yeah. kind of thing. And at the time, you know, the age group, the, the age category above me within Canada was exceptionally strong. I mean, they had three or four players that were truly world class for that cohort. And so even though you're maybe number two or number three under 17, the guys who are less than two years older than you, you can't even win a point off of. So you're thinking, you know, okay, these guys are like really competing on a a truly global level in their age category. They're less than two years older than me. And you've got that looming deadline of as soon as you turn 19, you know, it's every man for himself. There's no more age categories to hide in. You know, there's no more, you know, Canadian junior clothes, nationals. Like you just, if you want to play professionally, it's every man for himself, no matter how old you are. And sort of being not self-critical, but just being aware of, you know, how, just how challenging that will be makes you, I think, less preoccupied with, you know, your ranking within a certain geographical area and age group. Yeah, you basically get to a point where like your birthday
0: doesn't actually matter anymore, right? And well, exactly. Just
1: what can you do on the court? There are tons of guys that will have a birthday that happens to be the very last day of the junior nationals one year, so they can't play. It's like they were 18 yesterday, they're 19 today, <laughs> they're no longer a junior, and someone else wins the title. Like, yeah, it certainly has meaning. It's it, not yeah. to dismiss it at the time; it feels like the be all end all. But I think. Sometimes people in Canada and Ontario specifically get very preoccupied with the small pond and lose sight of, you know, the long-term development of a large group of players to compete on a bigger scale. It's interesting. I don't know there's a, you know, it was really made
0: famous with a Malcolm Gladwell book, uh, Outliers, where he talks about how... um, you know, there's a predominantly high number of, uh, I think it was NHL players born in the first few months of the yeah. year because they use the the year end as a cutoff. Yeah. And in other sports where the cutoff is September 1st, those athletes are actually best who are born in the first few months of the yeah. fall. And uh, so, you know, it's interesting how these arbitrary cut points actually do inf- influence development because the best players of their category of whatever age group they're set in tend to be the ones who do the best, get the best coaching, the parents yeah. are willing to invest in it, they are a little bit more motivated because of the results that they're getting, and it actually does, interestingly, result in better performance over time, but at the detriment of some of the other younger athletes who may be several months younger but actually have higher potential they just don't get the attention mm-hmm. it's kind of you know your point of the two year age groups in in squash at least lends itself a little bit better to finding a uh, uh, the best of any given age group in allowing them to perform at best.
1: Yeah, definitely. And as well, you know, when you're playing, you know, if you are one of the top, say 13 or 14-year-olds in Ontario or whatever, a Mm -hmm. lot of the junior events, the the rules on this have become stricter. But growing up, uh, when I was that age, if you were truly dominating the other players in your category, you were able to play up a division, sometimes two if you were exceptional. So you could get, you know, exposure against, you know, 16 or 17-year-old kids if you were a really elite 14 or 15-year-old. Right, but it's definitely a little more equitable, and I think the fact that it, it it's less um, it's less. I, I don't know if cliquey is the right word, but squash is a very open and it's, it's an individual sport. Anyone can sign up for a tournament and go play. Right. You're not going to be ex- you might be excluded from a team selection or being on a certain training squad, but that's not really going to limit your ceiling right. you know your, your ceiling is pretty much defined by yourself in squash so nobody's you know I think yeah in, in hockey you know someone who really discovers a passion for the game at age 10 or 11 or has a big growth spurt or really develops their skills, they've probably already been iced out of playing at the really high AAA or whatever rep levels because mm. those teams have been together since they were six or seven. Yeah. There's just no room for a, for, a, for a newcomer at that point. Yeah, it definitely depends on the location of the sport, but that's a really interesting trend. Mm.
0: Okay, so let's, let's keep going, man. So you're in high school, you're doing well, you're realizing where you fit on this kind of potentially international junior stage you see the age group above you that are doing some really amazing mm-hmm. things with really high potential you're getting towards the end of high school and obviously a decision is in front of you mm-hmm. about what to do next what did that decision kind of happen uh, when did it happen do you remember a very conscious uh, moment or a discussion with family or friends or coaches or Uh, teachers, was there something specific that helped guide you into the direction you ended up going in? And kind of
1: what did that end up looking like? Um, Yeah, I mean, so the commonly done thing with your top junior squash player in North America is to use that as leverage to get into a good American university. And, you know, whether you get a scholarship or not at an Ivy League school because they don't do... Athletic scholarships, uh, you know, is another matter, but it's just sort of your foot in the door to go to an elite school. And that ultimately is the end goal for, I would say, a major, a vast majority of mm-hmm. junior players and their parents who, who get their kids involved in squash in North America. And I was probably on the plan to go down that same path. Um, I'd applied to a few different schools in the States, been accepted to a few of them, um, and just decided that, because I finished I was pretty young when I finished high school and you know, a, lot of the, a lot of your peers would be one, two, sometimes even three years older in your first year of university, didn't necessarily wanna be away from home at that young age. So I'd, I'd take one year off to you know, pursue squash, dabble in it a bit, see how much I could improve in a year. And then by the time, you know, the fall calendar year had had come and gone, um, I was in the same position again. And, you know, I just part of me at the time Toronto was sort of had a really good infrastructure for a a young player sort of aspiring to play pro. And, you know, my parents were and, and my family's always been very supportive of the decision to, you know, put education on hold. And I wouldn't ever say it was one sort of, you know, Uh, eureka moment or there was no moment of clarity that where I decided this is the path I want to take but I generally had a a sort of sentiment that I would like to see what I could do with squash how high I could get how far you could take it because it is you know as I said before pretty much limitless you know the only ceiling is when you put on yourself in this game And yeah, that was, I guess, eight years ago now (laughs) and probably didn't think I'd be doing it for this long. But there was never any specific moment or discussion that really, you know, enlightened me as to what I wanted to do. But I always had the general sort of feeling that I would like to, given the opportunity, would like to pursue, you know, pro squash. So after
0: that year off, you can, you know, that that kind of break year, let me see what I can do, um, probably fit into a mindset of what many other people would do, it was very easy to kind of justified in your mind and to others, but probably the fall of that following year, you're like, okay, I got to take this seriously now. This is what I'm doing. There's probably a little bit more almost commitment because now it was a path you were almost definitively going down rather than a, let me see what a year off takes. Was that, is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's fair. And you definitely got a, you get a hard time from a lot of people. I mean, there is, you know, truthfully, there is a bit of a stigma about foregoing universe in North America, a stigma associated with, with, especially in squash, um, with trying to play professionally you know a lot of people were very critical of the choice I mean and that's only what they actually said to me in person <laughs> I can imagine what people actually thought um, because there's the perception that you know you're wasting the opportunity to go to an ivy league school which is there is some truth to that there's a perception that there's no money to be made in pro squash which which can be true in the early years but I mean you've got an opportunity to try and be world class in a sport which is something that most people would love the chance to do that in their lifetime and you know the, the commitment and the sort of you know personal like learning and growth that comes along with that are invaluable for the rest of your life mm-hmm. that I think five to seven years of you know going down an alternative path to the traditional. High school, university, get an internship, you know, get a job as soon as possible. I mean, it's just a slightly different path. And yeah, once you've committed to it, you sort of know that you're likely going to be criticized by a lot of people and second guessed by a lot of people. But I mean, that's fine. You know really shouldn't if you were that preoccupied with what people thought you wouldn't be playing squash in the first place because you know you're not in it for the fame or anyone's respect to begin with and yeah you're right that was the time where i thought okay i'm going to probably be doing this for a fair few years i better start you know training properly getting a real structure, getting an idea of how I would like to develop my game and physical side of things as well, definitely becomes more of a, you know, a job at that point than sort of a, a passion becomes a a lot more routinized, I would say. So, okay. So
0: next then you're like, I'm, I'm in, this is what I'm doing. I'm figuring my routine. Like talk to me about the first year or two where you're actually, I'm a professional squash player. Like you're telling people that, but you're actually living it every day. What is that experience like for you? What kind of a shift was it compared to what you had previously experienced? And just from like a the, the challenges of ranking and getting in tournaments and performing, like what what did that feel like to you? And and what were the challenges you encountered?
1: Oh, it's tough. I mean, yeah, you certainly the the training part of it. I always found I wouldn't say easy, but there was never a lack of motivation to like get up in the morning and get down to the courts and put in the required number of hours and work. In hindsight, I probably didn't do it in the most efficient way, but I found that the day-to-day routine was very manageable, always motivated, Um, but the results in the early going, especially when you're someone who's not particularly talented wasn't you know ever on a path to be one of the very very best players in the world you know it's pretty slow going early on there you're losing a lot of first round matches you're losing to guys you've never heard of before you're experiencing things for the first time all these variables of traveling uh learning how to prepare for matches you know how to prepare physically how to prepare mentally what to eat beforehand all those things are you will make countless mistakes in your early years on tour for sure and you know there's certainly not a lot of reward financially not a lot of reward personally when you're traveling and losing in the first round of a qualifying of a five thousand dollar tournament you know it's tough to to draw any positives from that and you know, a lot of times you're not even coming close to winning these matches. You know, you're happy just to compete and lose 3-0. And as long as it's like 45 minutes, you're happy. Like that's how low the bar can be at times. Um, and it takes a long time to learn how to just win any single match. Much less win multiple matches in a row and actually try and maybe make a run in a tournament. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was a lot of uh, first round exits. Is there
0: is there a mistake or something you overcame? Like, is there something particular when you mentioned that period of time? You're like, oh yeah, I really screwed that thing up.
1: I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure, actually. I, would, I wouldn't say any particular one. I mean, even think back to specific instances where, yeah, you just do boneheaded things like eat <laughs> way too close to your match or, eat, or wait way too long, you know, eat and then have eight hours until you play or, you know, you uh, forget to bring your tools to warm up with to the courts or you, you, know, you show up for your match a little later than you would like, you know, all these things that are, you know, once you're experienced for a couple of years, I mean, just seem like they're just simple, basic tasks right. that are, you know. Know, any serious professional has to manage you know without much difficulty otherwise you just won't make it um, but when you're you know 18 19 and you know not as familiar with traveling just not as not as able to prepare yourself or you know sort of think think ahead uh, yeah, I mean, t- tons of those mistakes, but I think that's part of, you know, the learning experiences is you, you have to probably screw the same thing up three or four times before actually learning the, the lesson properly. And it's the same for everyone. You know, everybody goes through those, those learning experiences and I now being, I wouldn't say a veteran, but an experienced player, you know, you kind of chuckle seeing some of the some of the schoolboy errors that, you know, the, the 18, 19-year-old guys make, you know, traveling before matches, things like that. Yeah. But, yeah. All right. Well, you know, speaking of kind of mistakes and challenges and stuff like that, you know,
0: bringing it back to you know, a little bit of, of kind of my area of interest, um, when it comes to kind of injury and in your body at that point in time, you know, and you talked about when you started being in the gym around 14, just doing whatever you could, probably a little bit unstructured. Yeah. Like, did you experience anything in the way of injuries growing up to the point where you're pro and starting to figure it out? Um, and what was your kind of relationship with your body from a physical point of view at
1: that point? I've always been pretty lucky. I've never had any of the chronic problems that, especially through like growth spurts, you know, guys will have knee issues, problems with their back, you know, and the other squash specific ones like hips and shoulders, Achilles, Achilles. Yeah, I was pretty lucky. Never had any like any traumatic injuries, and also pretty well avoided the chronic, you know, sort of like slow burning problems. Um, I think part of that is probably due to. Due to a lot of, you know, off-court preparation from a relatively young age, you know, even if it's not the most scientific thing in the world, just getting your body used to doing some simple weights and, you know, being on the bike, doing, you know, fitness sessions, stretching before and after, you know, stuff that you might look back on and think in, in, in microcosm is maybe a bit silly or not that helpful, but just... Ingraining those habits was helpful definitely at the time, and yeah, I mean I've been luck- very lucky. I've never had an injury that's really kept me from playing for more than a couple days at a time. And even then, there's there have been very few mornings where I woke up and thought well, I can't train today. Probably would have been smart to rest a little bit more <laughs> at some points. And yeah. if if you had you know more resources to devote to it or someone watching over you a little more closely, they may have intervened and. You know told you to sit this session out or to you know get treatment on this little problem Because squash players become pretty adept at um adept at adapting um you know playing around injuries compensating for things and of course it just leads to more problems down the road but i would say overall been pretty fortunate never had any any major problems and then, of course, as you get older, you become more and more aware of your body and what you need to do to prepare yourself to play, what you need to do to recover, um, you know, if you can you can feel a certain area that maybe needs a little bit more attention in the gym or things that, um, you know, you just to become to the point of diminishing returns, things like that. But overall, yeah, I've been pretty injury free. I mean,
0: it's interesting, right? We, we spend so much time working with young athletes in a lot of different sports and then Squash Ontario, our partnership working with them has been really fascinating because we see this. Um, breadth right, of the best players in the province and how they move their injury history so we have a lot of kind of data and information and even just anecdotally as well as actual kind of numbers and stuff like that and what's really interesting to me is I'm so aware of the importance of the foundation I know you, you
1: did gymnastics growing yeah. up right? so whether that played a bit of a role when did you stop doing that by the way? I probably, I don't even remember exactly but I would probably say that I was involved in some type of gymnastics from the age of like five until 10 or 11 nothing serious but again i think it's good for body awareness and coordination definitely so whether
0: it was a combination of luck uh, a combination of body awareness coordination Uh, dexterity and all those kinds of things. Flexibility, we know you're flexible and we know how important that ends up being in squash. You probably don't realize how important flexibility is until you're playing at a high level and you're older and you've grown. So those kinds of things play a really big role in in any young athlete building that foundation. and It's so rarely uh, implemented versus um, on court or the the sport technical or the sport-specific movements that are required. And uh, whether it was you developing good habits or um, or just, you know, moving your body in different ways, challenging it in different ways, it's something that starts to be lost now in a lot of our young athletes. And uh, that's, a, that's a big kind of point of emphasis for me.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think sort of as I was saying earlier – you know, squash is a game where you, you can a lot of times actually still play to a functional level while semi-injured or hindered in one way or another. You know, the classic, the classic thing is, oh, if you've got an issue with your, uh, in your uh, left quad, you'll just only lunge onto your right leg and then it's okay and you'll play through the problem and then obviously develop a, you know, complementary injury on the other side. But um, whereas, you know, there are certain sports, you know, you think of like, Maybe the the most extreme example would be something like sprinting, where the, the they're hypersensitive to even the slightest, the slightest strain, the slightest niggle, a little bit of pain, they'll shut it, they'll shut their session or they'll shut the race down immediately, and they're not going to risk, you know, um, because of the extreme strain they're putting on their body even for a short time, you know, they're not going to risk causing something more traumatic. Um, whereas squash is sort of just the opposite, because you know it is still largely a skill and, and tactical game that you can play around problems to actually a pretty severe extent um, without, you know, being taken out by a coach or without being completely unable to compete. So I think that's part of the reason why a lot of the juniors that you work with do have, you know, by clinical definition, you know, a pretty serious injury that they've been dealing with for a long time and haven't really addressed the problem because they've been sort of able to semi get away with it. Right. Even though they're selling, they're selling themselves short and probably putting a lower ceiling on their overall, you know, longevity of their career for the time being, it seems sort of okay. Yeah. So talk to me then because,
0: you know, through the years developing into where you are now, You've had so many different peers who are uh, almost as good as you, as good as you, better than you, um, and they've kind of gone on their different routes in different times, but do you recall a cohort of yours experiencing injuries and then their ceiling being limited? Like, what do you, what can you recall about that yourself?
1: I can think of probably, you know, growing up, maybe sort of the, uh, you know, group of guys from the Ontario sort of, I guess, Ontario and maybe Canada as a whole that you grew up training with and playing with um you know a, a lot of them at some point you know sort of through those growing years from the time we were 13 to 16 or 17 tons of them, you know, went through back problems, knee problems, um, they never seemed to, you know, grow into their body, so to speak, or they, they played through some of these minor injuries, and, you know, I, everyone sort of recovers from them eventually, you know, I can't think of anyone that I know whose you know, career was ended by something they experienced when they were 13 or 14, yeah. but if you have to miss six months, or if you have to take a whole summer off at some point, you know, it really slows down your development in those crucial years years where you might start doing some weights or you might start doing off-court stuff and so they miss out on that kind of training because they're dealing with a pre-existing problem and then they're not able to build that solid physical base because they're not able to train and then it's kind of that you know negative negative spiral where we've all seen pro athletes that seem to be chronically injured and I don't think it's a coincidence that some guys play their entire career you know missing a handful of of games if it's a team sport each season they play for 15 years and then other guys never seem to play more than 30 in a given year you know i don't think it's i think there is a correlation between being injured uh at a young age and then that just affecting your preparation for the future and lots of those guys who i grew up playing with sort of ended up quitting for a variety of reasons they're not taking it as seriously but it it was pretty common for people to end up missing you know half a season or even a full season at that time. Now, when you let's keep talking about the kind of the
0: developmental athlete a little bit, because you've obviously done a lot of coaching, uh, especially I guess in the last eight years. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so talk to me about what you, the the general, um, kind of athleticism of the squash players that you've worked with and kind of, you know, how you've seen them over years develop? Like, do you notice a trend that the ones who are better athletes are actually better squash players, or do you find that the their ability to adapt and be crafty and the technical side like actually wins? And and when maybe is that flip from? Uh, physical to uh, technical or vice versa?
1: I think there's there's always there's sort of there's like a, almost like a staircase sort of like an alternating staircase where you'll watch somebody who looks like an absolute beast of an athlete super strong super fast fit even if they're only you know a teenager and they'll look unbeatable and then you'll see them play squash against someone who's clearly physically inferior but just understands the game better has a better skill set better tactician and they'll get picked apart by that person and then that master tactician or when into someone who's even more physical and it sort of goes on all the way up the up the ladder. I think as you start playing at a higher and higher level, you know, you're, the the, ba- the required baseline for both sides of the game, of course, becomes higher. You know, you're not going to see guys who are, you know, overweight, you know, like properly overweight, succeeding at a high level. And if someone holds a racket like a frying pan, <laughs> it doesn't matter how fast and fit they are. Right. You know, so you have your requisite baseline becomes higher and higher. But I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of kids who are are talented junior players at the age of 10 or 11, you know, they usually are very good athletes in general, you know, and then maybe they become squash specialists over time and focus more on that side of the game. Um, Rather than just being raw athletes who sort of win through, you know, brute force and ignorance. uh, That becomes like less common as you get older and older. Because I think as well by the time everyone's gone through their growth spurt and finished puberty, a lot of that physicality sort of natural physicality sort of levels out a bit. And you have to start doing more squash specific training to actually... Um, have a physical advantage on court. Mm. You're not just going to be able to be fast or strong in general and apply it to the sport once everyone's sort of fully grown.
0: I thought it was really interesting. You told me one time that up into a certain level, and I I assume this works with both age and and skill level in squash, Mm. Uh, to a certain point, whatever your biggest strength is, is actually your level of performance. And mm-hmm. so you can imagine at 12 or 13, if you're just faster than everybody or stronger than yeah. everybody or taller than everybody, you actually have a distinct advantage. Yeah. But you get to a certain point where suddenly your everyone can exploit your weaknesses and suddenly your weakness determines your level. So it flips yeah. from whatever you're best at is your level to whatever you're worst at is your level. And that I think is this inflection point where people have to decide whether they're going to work on their weaknesses or they're just going to be doubling down on their strengths, in which case their ceiling probably never gets to what it could be.
1: No, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think that, that, that all, those sort of the weakness is more often than not in squash on the physical side. You know, when you start talking about playing at the pro level, um, there are tons of people that can hit the ball beautifully well, standing still in the warm-up back to themselves. You know, they look a million dollars in the <laughs> warm-up. You win the warm-up? Win the warm-up, yeah. Tons of guys. I mean, yeah, guys win the warm-up every single time. And then, you know, they actually spin the racket, start the match, and they can't lunge into the front corner. It's like, wow, that's going to be your sort of limiting factor. And it doesn't matter how well you hit the ball because the other guy plays a short ball and the point's done. You know, there's, certainly that can happen. I think you know at at, a, at a, the elite level um you start talking like sort of top 100 in the world type level that almost reverts back to technical weaknesses because guys have the skill set to just hone in on the, any spot in the court that they sense you might be a little bit dodgy and just hammer that same spot over and over or play a certain pattern that you don't seem to handle very well right. things like that but i mean yeah you certainly you know it it gets to the point where it almost doesn't even matter how much you develop other aspects of your game. If you have one clear weakness, I mean, you're going to struggle to even win individual points, much less win entire matches. Right. Whereas other sports, you know, something like you know, tennis is a great example. If you if you have an incredible serve, by definition, you can win half the games yeah. in a match. Yeah. Even if you can barely, there are guys, you know, that are top 20 in the world that, you know, their ground strokes and, and technical game, apart from the serve, are probably the level of being three or four hundred in the world, but their serve is unreturnable, and right. so it just gets them in matches. There's no such um, there's no such definitive uh, skill set that can be a, such an advantage in squash that it compensates for the weaknesses. That's interesting. Yeah. So I guess to be to get to that next level, you
0: really have to have to be well rounded, and like we just said, the weakness ends up becoming your level, so to speak. No, okay. exactly. Um, Talk to me briefly about the kind of experience now uh, for you on a, let's say, a a monthly or yearly basis. Like, how much are you traveling? How much of a demand is that on your body? And how well have you learned to navigate those challenges?
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends on the time of the year. There are certainly, like, peak seasons for travel and events, as, as there are with all individual sports. But, you know, in the busy months of the year, sort of October, November, December, and then maybe February, March, April, you know, you're likely playing Probably two to three tournaments every month. Some of them might be a bit more local, which is nice. But yeah, you're going to be taking a lot of flights. You're going to be crossing over a lot of time zones, you know, not feeling your absolute best, maybe not having the facilities or equipment at your destination where the tournament is that you're used to. And it's definitely very challenging. And I think it sort of becomes over time a matter of like minimizing the variables that are out of your control. There will always be certain things that you, you have no control over, you know, and you have to accept that randomness a little bit. But you can, you know, just by, you know, simple things like sounds so elementary but just making sure you're very hydrated when you fly bringing your your tools your various bands and ropes and things like that you like to use for the warm-up bringing your own to tournaments instead of relying on what they have at the club um you know getting to tournaments a couple days in advance doing a little bit of research on the destination if it's at altitude or something or if the weather is extremely hot or whatever um Just being a bit more diligent in your preparation and you learn that, you know, through experience over time and knowing as well. You're like, all right, should I, I've already got three tournaments scheduled for February. Should I try to squeeze this fourth one in? Like after playing three back to back to back, all these, all flights and travel, am I really going to be feeling at my, you know, utmost best ready to perform for the fourth one? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Maybe I'll give that one a miss then. So I think just being a bit more thoughtful with your preparation and, uh, yeah, trying to minimize the the number of variables that, you know, you don't have control over. And ultimately that just comes down to
0: experience, right, is knowing uh, what your body needs and what mistakes and what uh,
1: preparations you need to actually uh, no, exactly. avoid
0: and, and manage.
1: No, that's exactly it. And you got to think, too, you know, it's, sometimes there might be a bit more, you know, financial expense. Sometimes it might mean showing up three or four days before an event at a certain place that's, you know, not the most exciting city in the world to be in, things like that. You might be paying a hotel a couple extra nights or whatever, but you know, if this is your job, this is what you your the whole purpose of everything you do is to perform in these situations. You have to invest in yourself and, and you know, back yourself to succeed and, and not mind maybe taking a little extra risk or a bit of extra expense on if it means that you'll be you're more likely to be able to perform at your best or at least give yourself the opportunity to perform at your best. Right. Now from like a resource standpoint, from a travel standpoint, right?
0: Like you're not an NBA player, you're not even like a tennis player <laughs> from a from a financial point of view. Is that something that is really difficult for someone of your like level? Um,
1: and what kind of sacrifices do you kind of have to make based on that? Oh definitely, yeah. I mean you certainly you know is is well well documented that squash players have several fewer zeros on their paychecks than you know other major pro sports and yeah i mean something like uh, you know physiotherapy is a great example you know, ideally, you'd be seeing a great physio every single day, if you could, or multiple times a week, at least I mean, travel with travel you. with you, like a lot of, you know, tennis players or team sports will have team physios, team doctors. And I mean, that's just not the reality in squash, you know, it would be would be an, in a fantasy world, maybe that would be great. But yeah, I mean, you are forced to make, you know, some sacrifices and, and, and some concessions. Um, and you have to learn to be pretty self-reliant, I think that's the biggest takeaway from it you know even just Planning your travel, you know, planning where you're going to stay, what you're going to eat, you know, the things, the tools you're going to bring with yourself to aid your performance is going to have to be pretty um, self-sustaining because there's not going to be someone there to take care of it for you. Um, Yeah, I mean, certain guys are in different situations. Some guys, you know, have, uh, you know, four or five players from the same country are in a big tournament. Yeah, they'll have a physio travel with them and that's great. Or they'll have, you know, their own cook, come and, you know, make them food that they're familiar with. So they know they'll feel a certain way. But for the most part, yeah, you're generally going to be a lone wolf or you might have one, one friend who travels with you to a lot of tournaments, but yeah, for the most part, you need to learn to be very sort of adaptive and, uh, you know, again, not expect all every single variable to be exactly the way you have it. When you're at home, you need to be a little bit flexible and, yeah. and be confident enough in your squash game and in your preparation to know that, okay, you know, I wish I could get a you know, massage today. My quads are a bit sore, but that's not going to, I'm not going to use that as an excuse for losing tonight's match because I didn't get exactly the treatment I needed or something. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you certainly in a lot of uh, situations where you're wondering how you ended up in this place and (laughs) how you're going to find the motivation to play the match tonight. But, um, yeah, the guys who are winners and the guys who who succeed overcome all those obstacles, clearly.
0: Yeah. So talk to me then, you you mentioned motivation. Mm -hmm. So at this point, you've been doing this for eight years. You're 27? Uh, Almost, yeah. Almost 27. Um, what's the motivation now? What are, what are the goals
1: ahead? Like, what do you see for yourself in the next little while? Yeah. I mean, I I definitely didn't imagine I'd be playing for this many years. You know, I, even when I committed to it at the age of 18 or 19, I probably didn't think I would still be, still be grinding at 26 going on 27. But, you know, I still love training every day. Still as motivated as ever to improve. There are certainly things that become frustrating or aspects of it that become tiresome eventually. But, you know, I think you set medium term goals is probably the best way to look at it at this point. And maybe every six months you reassess and what you want to do for the next six to 12 months after that. You know, I think right now, like, you know, at this moment, uh, my ranking has been trending upwards recently. Hopefully, you know, get above my current career high, which is 81 in the world. You know, within the next couple months, a few good results would w- would help me surpass that. Um you know, winning Canadian Nationals is always an ongoing goal that yeah. I haven't achieved yet. That, that's every May the Nationals. Um, that would be that would be fantastic to win once before, before your career ends. And I think, yeah, just at this point, giving yourself a shot in some larger events, you know, sort of speaking your piece against the best players in the world when you get the rare opportunity to compete with guys who are ranked, you know, 5, 10, 20 in the world and just appreciating the privilege, you know, not to be cliche but the privilege of getting able to travel around playing a sport sort of semi for a living uh, while you have the opportunity and you don't have as many responsibilities in your life as you might in five or 10 years time and uh, really like cherishing the fleeting um, time frame in which that exists. And um, yeah, using that knowing that there is sort of a a, a finality to it, using that as motivation to prepare and compete at absolutely 100% so that you're not left with any questions when you, don't or, or can't play full-time anymore. That's a really interesting point, that last thing you said, with, you know, when you refer to um,
0: knowing the finality of, like, you can't keep doing this forever. Yeah, there exactly. will be a limit, and who knows when it will be, and when you say, okay, I've done my piece, I've accomplished the things that you just mentioned earlier. Um, but that must hang over most professional athletes to a certain degree, right? The idea of I've only got a small window, whether it's in other sports to make money, and then i got to figure out the rest of my life, uh, or whether it's just to make the most of the athletic gift and the amazing opportunity that I have. That's something that I don't know that when we look at most professional athletes, we actually fully register and appreciate how that can kind of weigh on somebody who maybe hasn't achieved whatever goals they set for themselves. And uh, that that pressure, that time pressure, which is actually the most significant one, uh, can really play a big role in uh, either the mo- motivation um some of the emotional challenges they encounter and also just their perspective on a day-to-day
1: basis about what they're doing no absolutely i mean you know there are certain and when a lot of guys i think regardless of the sport when a lot of uh players look back on their career they may not even realize that at a certain point they were getting near the end you know if someone is forced to retire through injury or some chronic problem that you know limits their ability to compete and they decide it's not worth it anymore or whether they, you know, in a team sport you get squeezed out of a league or if you're just not making as much money as you need to be uh, to continue playing, you know, I think a lot of people look back and go, you know, wow, if I would have known that was my final year as it turned out, I probably would have done a few things differently. And of course it's very cliche to say everyone's always going to have some regrets about, you know, not performing to their absolute best every single time. But... Yeah, I mean it's you know the the just the how fortunate and all the, all the support you have to get through throughout your entire life from your family, from coaches, from everyone around you to just like facilitate the opportunity to uh, you know be able to travel around the world playing a, a bizarre, nuanced niche sport like squash is uh, you know not to go unappreciated <laughs> hopefully yeah you know I definitely try to uh you know think oh this may be my last time at this tournament you know let's uh, make the most of the experience right yeah I guess at the end of the day you have to have that
0: mindset every single time you you go and you do any, anything at least as long as this current career of yours uh last is making the most of every opportunity And I guess that inherently is where the motivation for you to do what you do is and, and I guess that's Driven you as far as it is now, and
1: and hopefully some some uh, even further heights in the next little while. Yeah, it's yeah, it's great. I mean, just like if you, I, I think that a competitive instinct never goes away. You know, you're anyone who's played, you know, to a, especially in individual sports, you know, that internal competitive drive never goes away. You know, that's uh, that's never the issue. It's like everyone, that famous quote, everyone has the will to win, but you know, it's you know, you still need the will to prepare to win. Right. And you know, I think once you know, once you lose that. Will to prepare and all the, you know, little marginal things that are required day to day to, you know, keep your body and your mind in condition to perform at a high level, you know, as long as you still have, you know, that drive and, you know, and, and and everything else, you've got the infrastructure around you to, to continue playing and make the most of it while you can. Yeah, as, as, a, as a therapist, as a physio, as someone who works with
0: the body and works with a lot of athletes, you know, identifying that in people. And trying to get that out of the young athletes that, that I'm working with is something that's really fascinating. There's some people who just automatically have that and are really focused on preparing. There's others that have to kind of evolve into it over time. And, and I do wonder, in your, in your case in particular, whether or not you developed that so early that it's been, been much easier for you to find it over the last number of years, whereas someone else who maybe didn't have it early on...
1: Struggles to to overcome some challenges that you maybe didn't even realize were challenges, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like, yeah, for pretty much as long as I can remember now, squash, you just so desperately wanted to improve, like at any you know, of course, you say at all costs, definitely the things you would have d- done differently looking back, but you've been a hundred percent committed to it now since you're like 14 years old, basically. You just, it's just, yeah, it's a way of thinking and probably a, a lifestyle to an extent whereas you just like every single decision you make is um, you know impacted or is is sort of informed by how it's going to impact your performance on the squash court um, yeah and not everyone else who maybe has a more balanced life <laughs> or a more balanced mindset can think that way yeah. but you know it certainly uh, it serves you well and I think that that type of that type of approach will serve you well in the future as well if you, be, if you can become you know, so dedicated to, to one thing for a period of time, I think it, it, it bodes well for, you know, future endeavors as well. Uh, first of all, I like the you threw in endeavors. Second of <laughs> all,
0: as you uh, say that, I'm thinking about physio and what I've been able to mm-hmm. do and work towards from uh, a performance standpoint as well. And, you know, a lot of the decisions that I've made, the sacrifices that I've made um, and the steps that I've taken uh, are all kind of in that line of if I perform better, uh, as an individual, uh, in every single clinical environment, and I learn from every opportunity when I have it with and without a patient, that over time, the results will get better. And my advantage here is that my career doesn't have to end, you know, in my mid-30s. I've yeah. got a long time to be able to influence and grow. And, uh, and I you know, one of the major motivators for me in, in doing a lot of stuff that I do is to help to foster that in other people and then provide the resources for the ones who are already there and and uh so i think when you mentioned the performance piece it really it really resonates with
1: me yeah no no definitely i mean yeah some people need to uh you know they need they're a horse that needs to be led to water you know (laughs) and and forced to take a drink you know you have to some people you know as you're saying have that natural instinct of drive others uh you know i think probably people who are maybe a little less naturally talented tend to compensate with uh you know more obsessive approach to things (laughs) and people who are a bit more at least athletically a bit more naturally talented sometimes their motivation wavers a little bit more or they you know they feel like they can get away without putting in as much hard work as their peers and I mean yeah very rarely do you find uh, someone who has both <laughs> tend to be uh, the, the, the very best in their field if they do yeah yeah absolutely cool. alright well let's uh, let's wrap it up there I think we've got a, a, uh,
0: more conversations to have <laughs> we've got a lot of other things you can dive yeah. into mm-hmm. but uh
1: yeah, that was a lot of fun. I it was great to do it again. Great, yeah. Thanks, for having me on. Talk about uh, you know something that other than myself next time. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can arrange that. Unlikely. Unlikely. <laughs> All right, I'll
0: talk to you soon Thanks. Man.